0: We're going to pick up with stroke manifestations. So what do we say a stroke was? No, No, that's a seizure. What is a stroke? Okay, so a stroke is when you have ischemia to the brain, and the two major causes of it are either thrombotic stroke, where you you have a plaque burst, just like a heart attack. The other is a hemorrhagic stroke, where you have a blood vessel that bursts and starts bleeding into the brain tissue rather than delivering its oxygenated blood to the brain. Now, no matter which one we have, what's going to happen is cerebral edema will begin to occur in the brain. What's the body's normal response to damaged tissue? Inflammation. What are the major signs of inflammation? Redness, swelling, heat, and pain. Now, inflammation or the swelling part we call edema. edema now if you have a body like say you, you get a damage on your on your hand or your thumb or your leg what's going to happen to the swelling expand. it's going to expand outwards and you're going to feel you know if you if you push on it it'll feel taut and if it's pitting edema it will sink inwards but it pushes outwards and stretches the skin What's the problem with cerebral edema? There's nowhere for it to go unless we cut a hole in your head and let the pressure out that way. And by the way, they still do that sometimes. Yes, it's called a craniotomy. Yeah. (laughs) Now, um, the cerebral edema will peak at 72 hours, which means that the patient will have the most damage done to their brain in about three days after the stroke. So if they survive the initial stroke, they can continue having worsening symptoms until about day three, when that's when the cerebral edema peaks. It will last for approximately two weeks and cerebral edema is usually the cause of death unless the person dies with the first stroke. So if if the ischemia in the stroke is big enough, it can cause the patient to die immediately. If they don't die immediately, what's what's the most likely thing to kill them? Cerebral edema. Cerebral edema. When does it peak? Three days. Three days. So the person is not out of the woods until their cerebral edema stops growing. And then, how long does that cerebral edema last? Two weeks. Two weeks. Um, now, if it's at the base of the what we call a basilar infarct, which is the bottom of the brainstem, if that If that's where you have the tissue damage, you're going to die. Why? Because it controls breathing and heart rate. So if you can't have those controlled, you die. Uh, But most people don't die from the initial stroke. Most people die from cerebral edema. Now, symptoms are going to vary widely depending on the location and the size of the damage. So some, some possible things that can get damaged are sensation. So people will have strange sensations. They'll see things that aren't there. They'll hear things that aren't there. They will feel numbness and tingling on their body. Sometimes it's only limited to one side of the body. Sometimes it's both. Which is more common? One side, one side of the body. Um, it can have cognitive problems, where you have someone who just they can't think anymore. They get confused. They don't know what's going on. Um, motor problems where a person can't coordinate properly anymore, and then, of course, expressive and receptive aphasia. Dysphagia, with a G as opposed to an S, or dysphagia, means difficulty swallowing. And the number one cause of difficulty swallowing in the elderly is stroke. Loss of vision is also another big one. Um, If you have someone who has a sudden vision loss, that's always considered a medical emergency, and one of the things that it could be is, well, I mean, it can be retinal detachment and all kinds of things. But the big one we worry about is stroke. stroke. You can survive retinal detachment. You may not survive a stroke. Um, An intracranial hemorrhage. If the if the patient has intracranial hemorrhage, these are the basic um, symptoms the patient will have. First thing is a headache. I mean, just like incredible, sharp, just piercing, want-to-die pain. And then, eventually, the patient will become unresponsive. Um, this is c- probably the more common one that you see. But the patient can also have headache with consciousness and then headache with unconsciousness. If the patient just like, I just feel like I'm going to... Only they're not sleeping, they're in a coma. Now, you need to remember this statement. Time is brain. So what's the most important thing in terms of saving a person's life and preventing long-term complications of a stroke? Time to treatment. So time is brain means from the time the symptoms begin until the patient is treated. So treatment should begin within six hours to minimize, um, to minimize long-term complications. And really, if you can do it under two hours, that's even better. So what we're going to do, if the person comes in with these symptoms, we're going to do history and physical, do an MRA. What does MRA stand for? Angioplasty. So what you're looking for is actual blockages of the brain. And also um, look for blockages of the carotid that may have led to it. CT of the brain is possible, and a PET scan. What does a, a PET scan measure? Well, it stands for positron um, emission tomography, but what, is, what does it measure? What kind of, But how does it measure brain activity? Not electric. That's an EEG. It's metabolic activity. And how do we know something is metabolically active? Okay. Well, it does show hot and cold spots, but it's not measuring thermal. It's measuring oxygen consumption. And oxygen consumption is going to be used to burn glucose. So that's what it's measuring, how metabolically active that part of the brain is in terms of consuming oxygen and glucose. Now, if it's a thrombotic stroke, we are going to use anticoagulation. What's the anticoagulant of choice in this case? Heparin Heparin or? Lovenox, Lovenox, a low-weight molecular heparin. Thrombolytics may be used. What's the thrombolytic? What's the difference between anticoagulant and thrombolytic? Like thrombolytic. Okay, it is for those of you who said platelets, hit yourself. <coughs> All right, so anticoagulants prevent clots from developing further and prevent new ones from forming. But they do not dissolve existing clots. What does the thrombolytic do? Dissolves existing clots. Give me a drug name. TPA. TPA. Give me another one. Streptokinase. Streptokinase and TPA are the two most common. What's the difference between them? (laughs) What? What's the difference between streptokinase and TPA? Which one is older? Streptokinase. Which one is cheaper? Okay. Streptokinase. Um, which one has more side effects? Streptokinase. It's so a familiar picture, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And by, in terms of price, we're talking like $250 per dose versus like $3,000 per dose. What are some other names of TPA that you might see? Oh, got you there. Tenecteplase and alteplase are both other names for TPA. All right, and then we have vasodilation and antioxidant therapy. What do we mean by vasodilation? What will we do there? What, what could we give that would vasodilate? What could we give a patient that would cause vasodilation? Okay, we could give nitrates, like nitroglycerin or nitroproside. What else could we give? Not a beta blocker. Not an anticholinergic. Not a cholinergic. Okay, you could give an alpha blocker, but they're typically not. But calcium channel blocker would be the other one. And then there's some direct ones you could also use, but we're not going to talk about those. Why antioxidant therapy? So if we block off an area, we block off the blood flow, what do the cells below that area do? No, they don't start dying at first. They switch over to anaerobic respiration. Then what happens when we suddenly open that area back up and let blood flow to it again? It gets flooded with oxygen, and that oxygen causes oxidation. Now, how many of you know what oxidation is? Can any of you think of any examples of oxidation in your normal, everyday life? Okay, so when apples turn brown after you cut them, when avocados turn brown after you cut them, when iron rusts. So oxidation is not a good thing in your body. Think of it as the rusting of your tissue. So to prevent that oxidation damage, we can use antioxidants. And this is relatively new and will become probably more and more important as your careers go on in terms of using it for what we call reperfusion injury. So when, when blood flow goes off, what happens to perfusion? It stops. So when you open that area back up, that's called reperfusion. And oxida- oxidation damage after reperfusion is called reperfusion injury. So these are what we do for thrombotic strokes when there's a blood clot. And that includes embolic as well. For hemorrhagic, when there's bleeding, what we want to do is stop the bleeding. There's a number of ways to do that. What can we do? Okay, you don't want to give a vasoconstrictor because that could make them do all sorts of nasty things like necrose other body parts. Okay, how would you stop the bleeding? You could administer platelets, or fresh frozen plasma, or clotting factors, depending on if there's deficiencies in those. There's also specific drugs that you can use that will promote clotting, and we're not going to learn any of those. Aren't you lucky? The other thing is you want to treat or reduce intracranial pressure. So how do you reduce intracranial pressure? What? Okay, so one is postural. If you keep the head up, It will want to drain out. If you have them flat, it will want to stay in there. What else? (laughs) What? Valsalva maneuver? maneuver? Will that work? Yes. Why is why is the Valsalva maneuver contraindicated? All right, so if you strain in here, everyone do it right in the place. What is that doing to the blood? It's pushing it back upwards. So you want them to relax. Don't strain. Don't go to the bathroom. And what else? OK, we can do surgery to relieve the pressure, the craniotomy we talked about. We can put shunts into the brain to help relieve the pressure, although that's usually more for cerebrospinal fluid buildup than for bleeding in the brain. Are there any drugs that we could use that might help? Yes? I know and now you have to tell me what all right prednisone by the way, I forgot to tell you this when we talked about the the brain trauma. One of the most important things to do for a person who 's got brain trauma is administer steroids because that will reduce the amount of cerebral edema. It was experimental when I was in school now it 's the standard of care, and they were i 'm not sure if they 've actually done it yet, but they were talking about actually letting paramedics administer steroids on the scene because the earlier you can get them into the patient, the less damage there will be. Yes. All right, moving away from stroke. Um, Oh, by the way, so if you have a patient who's had a stroke, what's the most important thing we can do to prevent complications, long-term complications? Treat them quickly. How quickly? So less than six hours, but even better would be less than two hours. In terms of how the person gets treated that quickly, what is the most important thing? No. I mean, as far as getting, into, getting treated. Okay. Recognizing the signs and symptoms and seeking treatment. How many times have you, have you um, seen someone... Who had a headache and was dizzy and was like, kind of like, oh, it's okay. I'll be better. Let me just go, I'll just go to sleep. I'll just take a nap. And, you know, you've been doing that since you were like 15, 18 years old. Oh, it's just a migraine. Yeah. So if you if um, know someone who suddenly becomes flurried speech, you just can't talk quite right. Or maybe starts stumbling a little bit, or starts seeing double, or or having vision losses, or feels dizzy all of a sudden. Think stroke. No, you don't have to be old. Yeah. And what's and what is the number one what is the number one predictor of stroke? No. Well, I mean, risk factor was I meant. What's the number one risk factor for stroke? High blood pressure. Do you have a question? It's Mm -hmm. like face, arms, arms. Sure. All right. Next, meningitis and encephalitis. The difference between meningitis and encephalitis is a matter of millimeters. Meningitis is inflammation of the meninges, which is the lining around the brain, And encephalitis is inflammation of the brain. Now, meningitis can be either infectious or toxic. Toxic is from chemicals, and infectious is from bugs of some kind. They can be either viral or bacterial. Which one is more dangerous? Viral is not as dangerous. Yes. Viral is usually self-limiting. What does that mean? It gets better by itself. It is also less likely to cause long-term damage. Bacterial meningitis is life-threatening and can cause permanent damage if not treated promptly. Um, Hmm, let's see. Who, who, Who is the Latin person here in this room? Go raise your hand. All right, do you guys know an author named Horacio Quiroga? He's a Paraguayan author. Um, he wrote a he wrote a lot of different short stories. One of them t- is uh, I forget the name of it, but there were these. There's this family, and one of the kids had meningitis and ended up not quite right. And he saw his mother like slaughtering a rooster, and so this you know this color red just gave him this huge impression. So then he just started to become um, what's the guy's name? Michael. Like yes, Michael Myers. So he, started, he decided he to become Michael Myers. Um, meningitis before we had antibiotics, and even you know now we also have the vaccine was a huge problem as far as people getting it ending up you know retarded for the rest of their lives. So it's a lot better nowadays. All right, meningitis. Um, yeah. Bacteria, see, bacterial life-threatening may cause. Retardation. Anyway, if you want to be traumatized, read that book, read that short story by in Okuda. I'm sure there's an English translation of it. Oh yeah, I had to read it when I was like in sixth grade. Now manifestations of meningitis: sudden fever, headache, nuchal rigidity. What is nuchal rigidity? All right. So this person has a stiff neck and can't bring their neck forward to meet their chin. It's usually tested by having the patient lie flat and relax, and then you take their head and you go, and push it up to push their chin to their neck. If that hurts, causes excruciating pain, that's called nuchal rigidity. It can also cause malaise, nausea, vomiting, and apparently malaise again. <laughs> now, in terms of nausea, if you have a patient who has a fever, malaise, and just unrelenting nausea. It might just be flu, or it could be meningitis. meningitis. How would you tell the difference? Lumbar puncture. So what you would do is you would take a cerebrospinal fluid sample and analyze it for bacteria and other stuffs. Um, the The best treatment for it is... Prevention. And how do we prevent it? Well, one is a vaccine, and the other is don't live in close proximity to other people. So dormitory living is one of the big big ways that it's um, transmitted, which is why if you, come, if you come to PBA and stay in the dorms, you'll either have to get it or you'll have to sign a waiver saying, I take my life into my own hands, gosh darn it, because I don't care if I get meningitis. And there was a wave of me- a wave, uh, epidemic of meningitis, not too long ago in schools up in North Florida. Yeah. Really yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. My brother went to the high school with girl Jacksonville, yeah, and she, she was one the girls who died. Yeah. All right. Encephalitis. Encephalitis is an inflammation of the parenchyma of the brain. What is parenchyma? Oh, it's such a lovely word. What's parenchyma? <laughs> Insane in the membrane? No, that's, that's meningitis. <laughs> What's, what does parenchyma mean? We've defined this word before. You need to start remembering it. The what? No, that's the meninges. It's the actual functioning part of the brain. Yes, functional tissue. That's the definition of parenchyma. Now, encephalitises are usually viral. So we have several different kinds. We have some in the United States, um, like Eastern equine encephalitis and West Nile encephalitis and all kinds of crazy stuff. The the manifestations are usually similar to meningitis, um, but include decreased level of consciousness, seizures, and focal symptoms, depending on which part of the brain is affected. Sometimes the brain damage is irreversible. Um, Dr. Masella has a son who got encephalitis from some, uh, how would you call it, Um, contaminated vaccine. So, and, you know, he's been left with developmental delays, you know, permanent developmental delays. So... Yeah, in addition to viruses, other things can cause it, but viruses are the most common cause. So avoid mosquito bites, because it's usually a mosquito vector disease. Yeah. So. All right, multiple sclerosis. Next disease. Multiple sclerosis is a central patchy destruction of myelin. What does that mean? Okay, but what does central mean? In the what In the brain and spinal cord, so it's, it's in the central nervous system. What does patchy mean? Uh, it it's kind of spread out. it's not all all in one place. <laughs> now, the disease is characterized by attacks and remissions. What does that mean? It comes and goes. It gets worse for a while, it gets better for a while. Sometimes there's no reason as to why it gets worse. Sometimes there's no reason to why it gets better. The, the thing that makes this really tough is it's hard to know, is the treatment helping, or is it just a remission phase? And so you'll see a lot of really you know out there remedies for multiple sclerosis. And they'll all work eventually, because the person will eventually go into a remission phase. Uh, did, was it the crazy treatment that worked, or was it something else? And there's actually a a graduate of this university who wrote a book with her husband, who's a surgeon, called The Gold Coast Cure, which is um, a dietary plan to try and treat multiple sclerosis. I don't know. Worked for her. But did it work, or was it just a remission phase? Um, I guess you can try it and see if it works for you yet. Now, um, as as the attacks and remissions occur, a little bit of permanent damage is done each time. So over time, the person's remissions will still will get less and less, and they'll have more and more permanent damage. It usually comes on when a person is young. I remember one of my uh, f- one of my friends in high school. His brother was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when he went to, off to college. So he was like twenty years old when he got diagnosed with it it's usually a young person's diagnosis um, manifestation includes sensory problems like paresthesias proprioception problems and dizziness um, visual disturbances like diplopia and blurred vision and then spastic weakness of the limbs what does spastic weakness mean not exactly the word spastic means spasm it does not mean you know, like, you know how people make fun you know how people make fun of of uh, special people that 's not what spasm means. Spasm is a spasm of of the muscles now the reason why people who have spasm sometimes do that is because it's the only way they can move you know imagine remember we talked about how you, when you uh, take your hand and touch your shoulder, how you have to relax the other muscles. Well, if those other muscles won't listen and relax, you end up kind of like yeah. jerky. And so a lot of those people, you see them, they're like this all the time because they're spasmed inwards. And so when they run, it looks really funny because they're like throwing themselves because they can't do it normally. That's what we mean by spasm. So a spastic weakness is when you've got muscle contraction, but you're weak at the same time. Cerebellar problems like nystagmus and ataxia. Bladder problems like hesitancy, which means I'm trying to go and I just can't. Frequency and urinary retention, which puts them at risk for what problems? UTIs. UTIs, and if it gets bad enough, hydronephrosis, and eventually renal failure. Uh, Mood problems like euphoria and memory loss, although I guess euphoria is better than dysphoria. And treatment is usually aimed at the symptoms. The episodic nature makes it difficult to treat. Yay! Now, most of the drugs that we use are anti-inflammatory in nature, like steroids and immunosuppressants, and also there's the diet therapy. Next, we have... Guillain-Barré. Guillain-Barré is a really interesting disease. It's essentially a very short, fast version of multiple sclerosis, but for the peripheral nervous system. So what you get is you get an acute ascending progressive demyelinization. What does acute mean? Sudden. Sudden. So it happens over the course of a week to two weeks. Um, what does ascending mean? Does it start here or here? here. Okay. So, It starts at the fingertips and the legs, and then it moves upwards towards the spinal cord. Um, The Precipitating events, we're not exactly sure what causes it. But there's a variety of events. Um, Mild viral and bacterial illnesses can cause it. Surgery can cause it. Some immunizations can cause it. But the most frequent thing that seems to be the problem is Campylobacter jejuni, which you happen to know is, or causes, Something with the intestines. Diarrhea. What would we call that? <laughs> What's it called when you eat a bacteria that causes diarrhea? <laughs> food poisoning. <laughs> <Bad bacteria. laughs> or you could call it a bacterial in- gastroenteritis. So, Campylobacter is a is basically food poisoning. Now, most of the symptoms we divide the symptoms into negative and positive symptoms. You need to understand this difference because you're going to hear it again when you get to psych. A negative symptom is when you don't have something you should. And a positive symptom is when you have something that you shouldn't. So I want everyone to take their finger and touch the tabletop. Can you feel that? Okay, now lift up your finger. Do you still feel the table? No. So when you touched it, you felt it. That's how it should be. When you lifted your finger up, you stopped feeling it. That's how it should be. Imagine you were feeling the table when it wasn't there. Would that be a positive or a negative symptom? Positive. Okay, now imagine you were touching the table and you didn't feel anything. That would be negative. So the negative symptoms, the patient has muscle weakness and paralysis, and decreased deep tendon reflexes, and eventually loss of sensation altogether. Now why is that a problem? OK, it's a problem because you could step on the nail. But let's think more about the muscle weakness paralysis. Because this is the real danger of Guillain-Barre. What? Internal violence. Yeah, the heart. Yeah. Okay. All right, the heart usually isn't a problem. What's usually the problem is swallowing and breathing. And in fact, a lot of Guillain-Barre patients end up in the hospital on ventilators. At least for a while, because the good thing about Guillain-Barré syndrome is that it's self-limiting. So it gets better. You get better after a while. So usually the person goes on a ventilator for a week to six weeks, and then starts to get better. Some people get completely better, and some people only get partially better. And getting better can take up to two years. Um, Now, positive symptoms include pain and paresthesias. So there you go. You have a question? Yeah. You're sure, go ahead. Um does it have to get that bad? For no. So you can you can still have it though, right? Yes, yeah, so you can get Guillain-Barré without being so bad that you become paralyzed. How, how old do you have to be? I don't know. Why you think you have it? I've I had it. Yeah. I'm not I don't know. All right, now the treatment. Plasma decreases the severity. Now what is plasmapheresis It's when we filter the blood and we take out plasma. What does plasma have in it? Proteins. proteins. So, probably what we're trying to do here is get rid of inflammatory proteins, of which the number one in the blood is antibodies. 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 Yeah, inflammatory is the key word there. Yeah. So, we think that Guillain barre is an autoimmune type problem, but again, it's self limiting. And usually gets better by itself if we can keep the person alive. alive. All right, next next disease, Huntington's disease, also called Huntington's chorea. Yes, C H O R E A, not the country. (laughs) (laughs) The word chorea, um, I'm not sure if it's Greek or Latin, but it means dance. And the pro- the reason is because people who have Huntington's Korea are kind of like in this endless writhing, never ending kind of like weird Elaine type dance, you know, like, just like you know they can't just always move, kind of like, yeah, like that. Um, it can be quite painful, and they you know they can't stop. Now it's an autosomal dominant disease, which means that if you have the gene, you will. Have the disease. The good thing though is that the disease usually doesn't come on until a person gets to around age 45 or 50. So, in the old days when the average lifespan was 40, hardly anyone ever got it. <laughs> now that with our modern medicine, you know, people live long enough to get it. Um, the onset of the disease, usually late 40s, early 50s, insidious onset, which means it begins slow and builds up gradually. Um, so it's characterized by the chorea and the loss of cognitive function. So the worst part is a lot of times, you know, they, as they start getting these symptoms, they know what's going on. But after a while, they don't know what's going on anymore. Um, I tr- I, when I was a student, I did a little you know, R- ER rotation for a couple days like you guys do. And this girl came in who had Huntington's disease. She was 27 years old. And it was very unusual. You know, she, had, I mean, she just had it bad. She was not there in her head, and she just couldn't stop moving the whole time. They're trying to put an IV in her, and it's like, you know, it's, it's impossible. Um, it's a very kind of sad disease, and a lot of patients who have Huntington's uh, disease will decide not to have children because they don't want to risk passing it on to their children. What's the risk of passing it on to their children? 50%. Does it matter whether it's a boy or a girl? No. You guys are so smart. Next one is called amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also called ALS, and better known as Lou Gehrig's disease, named after Lou Gehrig. Who was a baseball player? Was he a great baseball player? He's all right. He's okay, if you like that kind of thing. It's a progressive degeneration. What does progressive mean? It gets worse. gets worse over time. Degeneration? Breakdown or Breakdown destruction of motor neurons. Now, how many of you saw that movie, I was it Northern Country, with uh, Charlize Theron about, uh, about you know, being in the Union and being a minor, like the, a girl minor? Um, Her friend in that movie had amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. So if you remember, she started out with just kind of pain and and couldn't couldn't use her arms, and then eventually ended up in the hospital on a ventilator and then died. That's what happens. So with these patients, they first start out with fine coordination going away. So they can't write. They might not be able to turn the key of a car. Then they can't feed themselves. Then larger coordination goes like being able to walk and eventually being able to breathe. And it's usually a two to six year average lifespan once the diagnosis is made. So you get diagnosed, most people will die within the next two to six years, which can take a long time. I once dated a girl whose grandfather had ALS. And the worst thing about it is that as your body shuts down, you're 100% aware of what's going on. So you're aware you're messing yourself and you can't do anything about it. You're aware that you've got these sores, you know, bed sores, and you can't do anything about it. So your body basically just deteriorates around your mind.